0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi everyone, my name is Eric Sue, And I'm Louie Everest. And we're Lou and the Sioux, and this is the Sociology of Everything podcast. Brought to you by UniSA, the university that has a surprising number of student clubs. (laughs) Um, The one that I found recently that really tickled my fancy was the one called Media Mayhem Society.
1: (laughs) Now, what is involved in Media (laughs) Mayhem Society? This is the description
0: for them, right? Movies, books, games, and memes. What more could you want?
1: I mean... (laughs) I actually quite love that, to yeah. be honest, because it's sort of like such a modern interpretation of what is a text, right? Yeah. It's like I mean, to be fair, if you yeah. add
0: sociology to that list, that's yeah. pretty
1: much the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, no wow. I'm I'm interested in what percentage of their time they spend looking at memes. Yeah. Well, like, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, fret right up the bat, Louie. New microphones. Yeah. We sound professional.
1: I think we definitely do sound professional. This has become a proper podcast. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We could do some of the uh, MSMR, whatever it is, where they do like, super close talking and the whispering. (laughs) 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 I feel like we just lost 10% of our audience and got 10% very excited. (laughs) And
0: I should also mention, new podcast title. Mm. Yeah, we're calling ourselves the sociology of everything podcast. Mm. And that's in part because... Frankly, no one knows how to spell my last name. They don't even know you pronounce that as Sue. And then to be fair, like no one, not everyone knows that Lou is
1: L-O-U. Yeah, yeah. I have heard a lot of people try and get the H into your name. (laughs) Give it a bit of a (laughs) Sue sort of action.
0: (laughs) Well, you could say that these changes are a revolution in this podcast. (laughs) And that's the subject matter for this episode. We're going to look at Thomas Kuhn's famous work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And this text is quite a unique one in that it's actually received attention and acclaim outside of the academy. I think there's been over a million copies of this work sold. And since it was released around probably about 50 years ago, it's been a seminal, important piece of academic work. And what's interesting, though, about this work is that Kuhn is not a sociologist. He has a background in physics, but he came to produce ideas that have become really interesting and relevant to the field of sociology. And I think the best way of introducing what this work is about is by looking at his discussion of science textbooks because that's a weird way to start, but one of the arguments that Kuhn puts forward in this particular work, uh, that was published in 1962 originally, is that we have to understand science as being full of contradictions and conflict. Mm. Because if you just like flip open the pages of a science textbook, he thinks it paints a rather seamless, a rather happy-go-lucky understanding of how science works and operates. Mm. And you think of science as people building on each other's works. And it's kind of like people giving each other high fives in the laboratory. Like, hey, guess what? I found this. Like, Oh, awesome. (laughs) But that's not how science works, according to Kuhn. And so what Kuhn was really interested then in was trying to understand the history of science. Mm. But he was more interested in the ways in which science involves contestation. And so to help us understand what this really work is about, let's look at the different phases. Let's, let's begin there. The different phases of science that Kuhn believes is integral to the scientific process. Mm-hmm. And the first phase he notes is what he calls the pre-paradigmatic phase, which is quite a mouthful. And so to understand what this particular thing refers to, we have to first of all look at his seminal concept of of the paradigm. Hmm. This is something we hear every day in the news or in our everyday conversations. Hmm. People talk about paradigm shifts and paradigms. What is a paradigm, Louis?
1: Hmm. Well, the terminology that Koons use is he refers to a paradigm as the universally recognized scientific achievements that, for a time, provide model problems and solutions for a community of practitioners. And what he's referring to there is the collection of knowledge within a certain discipline, the ideas and what's considered truth, the way in which the world's conceived, the questions that researchers ask on a regular basis, and the big the big ways of explaining the world that's accepted as truth and settled knowledge. It's the finished product of science that has occurred in a similar area. It's what's published in the textbook. And Koons refers to that as being ahistorical and objective. Like you said, it's presented as just the truth, and it's not connected to the context in which it was produced. It's so just the facts of a book.
0: Before a paradigm is adopted mm. and before it's established, there is this phase, what he calls the pre-paradigmatic phase, mm. where kind of like anything goes, there's no mm. set established way of doing things. And so mm. when I oftentimes think about this particular phase, this particular concept, I think of like cooking, you know, we now have established paradigms of what constitutes Italian food or Japanese food. The thing about pre-paradigmatic phase is that there's no recognized way of doing something, a way of uh, consuming something. And so this doesn't even just to apply to how something is understood – it's even also applied to the tools we use to understand that very thing. So to use, go back to the cooking example before the establishment of a paradigm, you would have to invent each time your cooking utensils.
1: Mm. It'd it'd be like not even walking into a kitchen. It'd be like walking into a random room and picking up random things and deciding what's edible, what's not edible, all off the bat with no pre-existing system in place. There's no pre-existing framework (laughs) in place, which, by the way, uh, my partner and I aren't the best cooks. (laughs) I feel like sometimes our kitchen works in a pre (laughs) paradigmatic way.
0: (laughs) It would be interesting, though. It'd be like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, where you have, like, Gollum. And he just, like, picks up a fish from the river, right? <laughs> and he just, like, bites its head off. <laughs> and obviously, I know your, your wife is uh, a vegan, Louis. But it would be as if when I, like, visited your house, you'd, you'd be, I, w- I would say, oh, you know, what are we eating tonight? And then, like, you were just literally finding fish in the river and biting their heads off. <laughs> and then I would be like, yeah, I guess that's fine. I mean, like, I, there's no, that wouldn't strike me as being odd in any way. But once we become accustomed, once we accept a paradigm, Kuhn then believes we enter what he calls normal science. Mm -hmm. And normal science is the business of science that many of us are used to. Mm -hmm. It's the science of what Kuhn calls puzzle solving. Mm. So when when a paradigm is established, when it's accepted... We kind of go about our business. We know what questions were permitted to ask in science. Mm-hmm. We know what tools more or less we can use to ask and mm. investigate those particular questions. Mm. And how else would you characterize normal science, Louis?
1: Yeah, it's the application of existing principles of existing frameworks, like you said. It's not it's not posing the really big questions about the world. (laughs) When he refers to it in this text, he says that those really big questions about how the world functions, they have to already be solved for a normal science to exist. can we give an example of, like, normal science? So, a normal science could be something like chemistry or biology or some form of science where you have already gone through university, you've read those textbooks, you've learnt the basic principles, you know, the periodic table, you know, that, you know, temperature increases how reaction can occur. Those yeah. principles are all learnt, And so then you just do an experiment within that framework, you apply all those principles to describe or explain one specific small part of the world.
0: So let's say like I was a cancer researcher, mm-hmm. I was interested in trying to develop a new treatment for a cancer that hasn't gotten very much attention, Mm -hmm. I would say, all right, well, what are the acceptable ways to test out these treatments? Mm. Right? There is already a framework in place in which the work that I'm doing can be assessed. Mm -hmm. It can be undertaken. Mm -hmm. But according to Kuhn something sometimes weird happens, Mm. (laughs) okay, (laughs) in normal science. Mm. And all these anomalies start to accumulate. Mm. So to use the analogy of puzzle solving, it it would be like if you're trying to do a puzzle and an extra piece appears or is missing. Mm. And, you know, you might say, oh, Mm. well, that's just sometimes happens, but, you know, we'll just keep going. Mm. And if enough of these anomalies occur... We then reach a point of
1: crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's another th- the other interesting thing about how novelties uh, become apparent within normal science is it's not just that researchers might accidentally stumble across something they can't explain with mm. the tools they already have within their current paradigm he also r- talks a bit in this text really interesting about how sometimes new technologies are developed, new tools mm. are developed a new microscope for instance is developed that can see things in greater detail and then that suddenly brings to light these new things about the world that can be a kind of key moment of these novelties being produced Mm. when a new tool is used for the first time so there's a
0: few things that can happen then when a paradigm is in crisis (laughs) 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 so when it's in crisis the paradigm can survive someone could say this anomaly This unexpected thing that's happened can actually be explained by the paradigm. We just have to figure out a way Mm -hmm. for it to do so. Some people can modify the paradigm slightly. But then, if enough anomalies build up, or if they're serious enough to command people's attention, we then maybe need to look elsewhere Mm. for answers we need to look for a new paradigm. And Mm. this is when he argues scientific revolutions occur. Mm. And importantly, scientific revolutions don't just refer to when like someone comes up with a new discovery and then that's it. It revolutionizes the field because it aligns with the previous paradigm. It's paradigm making it's paradigm shifting. We actually think of a particular phenomenon scientifically in a radically new way, in a radically different way. So I think, Louis, one of the best examples is the one he gives between the Copernican understanding of the universe and the Ptolemaic Mm. understanding of the universe. So to give you some backstory, if you're not aware of this instant in history, Ptolemy once theorized that the Earth stands at the center of the universe. (laughs) That's intense, isn't it? Mm, it's
1: a big theory. It's intense, isn't yeah. it? And it's like right at the heart of those paradigms because it's a big explanation of the world that you need to orientate everything else.
0: Right. He's like, he go- he gets in front of <laughs> like an entire crowd of people and he says, everyone, the earth is at the center of the universe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just pay for it, so.
0: <laughs> And then these astronomers are doing all these calculations, and they keep finding that this idea that the Earth stands at the center of the universe and everything rotates around it doesn't quite align. I mean, the moon seems to rotate around the Earth. Why wouldn't everything else? Hmm. So along comes Copernicus. Copernicus comes along and says, Actually, Ptolemy, you're wrong. You're so wrong. <laughs> so wrong, everyone. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: <laughs> That's, right. That's a way. very bad analogy. <laughs> using Trump, using one of the leading figures of post-truth world as your as your voice yeah, for okay, Copernicus. All right. So definitely,
0: definitely bad analogy there. So. Uh, Can I just say, for the descendants of Copernicus, Mm -hmm. I'm not casting any aspersions (laughs) towards (laughs) Copernicus. I'm sure he sounded very different. Okay, so he he goes in front of everyone and says, actually, I think Ptolemy is wrong. Mm -hmm. The universe doesn't revolve around the earth. In fact, the earth itself revolves around something else, the sun. And what will also blow your mind? The fact that Even the sun is not the center of the universe. Mm. Now, when he introduces that idea, astronomers start to consider what he has to say, and they're finding there's a lot more quantitative precision to what he has to say. Mm. It starts to make more sense. Actually, this understanding the alignment between the Earth and stars and other planets, when we start to believe that the Earth is not at the center of the universe, it makes more sense.
1: Well... It does, but he makes the point that it wasn't accepted that easily, though. And in fact, when it was first suggested, a lot of scientists, in fact, the majority of scientists would have thought of him as being something of a Trump figure, because that's one of the things about a change in paradigm, is that when the new idea comes along, it might explain that one novelty or that one anomaly that develops, but it doesn't explain everything else that the existing paradigm's used for. So... In this text, it talks a lot about the fact that it's not an easy an easy thing to shift between paradigms. That new idea is considered in a very hesitant fashion for a very long time. And a lot of people were very negative towards Copernicus's opinions at the very start of that. It wasn't an easy process.
0: And I think that actually leads us nicely to a segment we like to call Say What? <laughs> where we look at a quote in need of further explanation. Kuhn writes in one of his sections, The transfer of allegiance from paradigm to paradigm is a conversion experience that cannot be forced. Lifelong resistance, particularly from those whose productive careers have committed them to an older tradition of moral science, is not a violation of scientific standards, but an index to the nature of scientific research itself. Later on, he says... These conversions occur not because the fact that scientists are humans, but because they are. I think this is remarkably insightful. Mm. Mm. Because he's trying to argue that we shouldn't just understand science as being self-evident. It's not like when Copernicus got up on the stage... And by the way, this is all metaphorically speaking. <laughs> if, if any of you think that this is how the scientific I, process pretty, worked no, back then... It was
1: not that. I'm pretty sure it was a rap battle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a rap battle. <laughs> yeah, Copernicus had some pretty sweet rhymes. Yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, <laughs> but when, when Copernicus got up on stage, metaphorically speaking... <laughs> And he announced his idea. Mm. It wasn't simply that scientists, as you mentioned, just agreed. And they go, yes, you've showed us the light. You know, mm. Copernicus, you're amazing. Mm.
1: <laughs> 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 Not, and in fact, he, describes, he explicitly describes the decision to choose a new paradigm over an old one mm. as a matter of faith. Hmm. He literally uses that term because he says you need to have faith that all of the things that the new paradigm can't yet explain, it will be able to explain. It's inherently going to feel lesser at the very start, but you're holding value in the fact that that key anomaly that's been identified is so significant. And by the way, whether the earth goes around the sun or everything goes around the earth, it's a pretty significant fact. If yeah, you've got to pick something to center a new paradigm to on, To be clear,
0: those huge. two points aren't just different. They are fundamentally incompatible. Exactly, Ptolemy believes the earth is an immovable mass, Mm. whereas Copernicus conceptualizes the earth as a body like any other in the universe, Mm. also bound to the same laws. And there's a nice little quote that I think also addresses another point you made, Louis, when he says that even the nationality or the prior reputation of the innovator and his teachers can sometimes play a significant role. He's also trying to say to some extent, I mean, this is a very reductive understanding of what he has to argue, that like it's can also be sometimes a
1: popularity contest, you know? Yeah. Well. I, I, To be honest, I think this, for me, is the most interesting part of the text. And it's also the part that has spurred on so much interest in uh, Kuhn's work and has become the controversial element. You know, is he promoting what people would refer to as a relativist (laughs) version of the world or a realist version of the world? Um, And the key is exactly what you said. Science is still something that's done by humans in a social context. The ability of science to move from one paradigm to another paradigm isn't just a move. Movement that's motivated by being able to explain the world better. It's a movement that's motivated by people having charisma and being able to convince their fellow scientists <laughs> to go with the new way of thinking yeah. and to convince them of it. There is something that's subjective about this and is tied to human beings and all of their biases and prejudices and everything else. Hmm. He's still saying that you need to be able to explain the world accurately. So there's still that objective element to it. But at the same time, there's the fact that it's a human occupation science and we can't forget the context, the social context in which science occurs. And in fact, he makes his point really nicely with this quote. He states, something must make at least a few scientists feel that the new proposal is on the right track. And sometimes it is only personal and inarticulate aesthetic considerations that can do that. So he's not referring to something being this whiz-bang explanation or this new truth. He's talking to the fact that it's presented it in a really good fashion, that Mm. people can actually convince people of it. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's like, you know, when uh, the iPod came out,
0: (laughs) you know, or actually maybe Facebook. Yeah. That probably sounds a bit whole that now, but those of us, those of us who remember MySpace, it was like a dog's breakfast. Yeah. Right, it was you could do whatever you wanted, you know. Tom was very permissive. Okay, yeah. for those of you that know MySpace, you'll know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Tom. He would let anything go, but Facebook packaged social media yeah. in a way that was more attractive.
1: Yeah, yeah, and
0: to some extent, that also applies yeah. to yeah.
1: the business of science. Yeah, but- If there's one final thing I can add on that as well, because it's so fascinating, this discussion at the end of the text, is that he says that he says that, you know, it's very important how convincing arguments are and the aesthetic of their argument in terms of it's sort of it's how flashy it is, I suppose, or how how nice it is to hear. But then he also makes his next point, which is so fascinating that he says, if someone is a finding facts, if they are finding an objective truth about the world, their argument will inherently be stronger. And he even uses the word destiny. I mean, these are quite interesting words, faith and destiny, for a scientist talking about, you know, the new paradigm. But he says, you know, if people are competent, and if they can use the new tools to explain the anomaly, then their argument will inherently be quite articulate. It'll inherently be a good aesthetic argument, because it's doing something amazing and explaining a novelty in a new way.
0: Two things bear mentioning for what you just said. Number one, I think you're absolutely right. Kuhn crushes it when it comes to coining new terms. (laughs) Okay. The idea of a paradigm shift is something that now has escaped into everyday conversation. It's no longer simply a matter for academics to debate and discuss and to utilize. When we talk about various shifts in the way in which things work we refer to them as paradigm shifts
1: and even outside of science even now within politics or culture and other realms we refer mm. to a big change in the way things are done and the way people conceptualize something and think about something as a paradigm change yeah. the other day actually
0: louis someone said that this podcast was so revolutionarily good <laughs> that they said it was a paradigm shift in sociology podcasts
1: <laughs> give them the applause give them the applause Uh,
0: the other point and I think this is what I want to conclude this episode on is Kuhn's belief that this throws into doubt the idea that science is always equated with progress because when we usually think about science we think about knowledge progressing building on top of one another he calls it the accumulative understanding of science. The accumulative understanding of science is the idea that more or less paradigms just simply evolve and they get better at understanding the world. Whereas the understanding of science Kuhn wants to highlight is the one that's full of conflict and disjuncture, where people radically disagree with one another. So from the viewpoint of Ptolemy, Copernicus is just wrong. He's wrong. And he, he would, he would not applaud all these people going towards this new view of the universe. And he also thinks that we need to think about our own circumstance, our own sense of science, because he doesn't actually think Ptolemy, what Ptolemy was doing wasn't science. He's like, that was science. What Copernicus was doing is science. So he very much then wants to question this idea of progress because progress, according to him, erases the history, the messy history of science. And I think hopefully that in unpacking this text, it's a very rich one, (laughs) we've also shown that this text is full of interesting insights. And in a follow-up episode, we're going to talk about how there's also messiness associated with what Kuhn had to say and how it was received in the field of sociology. But we might just leave it there. Thanks very much, as always, for your attention. Catch you in the next episode. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs online or in person at the University of South Australia. Visit unisa.edu.au, where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening!